Well, I thought I'd start with some trivia for you this morning. Some of this stuff we've talked about in the past, but just some interesting observations. Nothing really specific about it. November 2nd of 08, we elected a brand new president, Barack Hussein Obama. (laughs) The very next day, Illinois Lottery, the pick three, was 666. Uh, You can think what you want to think about this stuff. I mean, coincidence, maybe so. I can't imagine that the Lord would use a lottery like that the day after somebody got elected president to identify this guy. But how would you know otherwise? There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that when you look into the New Testament, you see them fulfilled. They're not as direct as you would have thought they were if you'd have just had the Old Testament and read it. It would have led you to think something else was going on. When they start talking about his bones not being broken, can you envision that on a cross and why they broke the bones of the other people? But now when you got both of them together, you can go back and you can say, oh, yeah, well, that's obvious now. If, in fact, this thing works out, you'll be able to look back and say, well, that was obvious as it could be. How'd you miss that? So... This guy has got some doubts about his birth certificate. You say, what's so special about that? Well, do you realize the Antichrist is going to be as close to Jesus Christ as he can get? He's going to be so close that a lot of people are going to say, here is Christ, and they're going to believe it. And you say, lion of the tribe of Judah, and your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion. And here this guy's got questionable birth. So did Jesus Christ. His birth was very questionable. I mean, unless you just took the thing by faith, it would be like, that couldn't happen. That's never happened before. <laughs> anyway, Luke ten eighteen says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. This guy did a study on this stuff and he went back into the old Aramaic and he pulls up these words out of the dictionary and he numbers the words and he says, Barack and Obama If you pronounced them similar to that in Aramaic, one of them has to do with lightning and the other one has to do with falling. Oh, well, that may be coincidence too. But the more of this stuff you see, the more you begin to realize that we're not only living in the last days, there's some things starting to come together. I remember talking about the rapture, how excited I got about being raptured. You know, oh joy, oh delight, should we go without dying? But the closer it gets to it, the more it's like, wait a minute, I didn't expect it to be like this. (laughs) Well, take comfort in this. There's two grinding at the mill, one taking one left, two working in the field, one taking one left, and two in the bed, one taking one left. Now, that is not after cataclysmic meltdown of the church where you're not buying and selling and your life is in the toilet and you're out there in the mountains hiding from the Antichrist. That's not what's going on. In matter of fact, he says, in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh, it's not going to be at the time when there's only five or six of you left because they cut the heads off everybody else. It's going to be a period of time when you're getting real close and it's like maybe there's some other things that are distracting the entire world. Like, for example, a nuclear holocaust. I mean, if Israel starts pushing buttons and the bombs start going off and starts nuking the Palestinians over there or somebody else, your attention is not going to be on the rapture. (laughs) You're going to be worried whether or not you're going to start seeing stuff coming over here to Eglin Air Force Base. 
Like the one guy said, if they push the button, I hope it goes off right over the top of my head. <laughs> he who goes first goes cleanest. That's what a general said before they went into battle. He who dies first dies cleanest. You know, <laughs> the rest of them, they suffer. Anyway, what else? Habakkuk 2.5. Talks about the Antichrist and gathering him all nations and heaping unto him all people. And when this guy comes along, he's going to start gathering other nations together. Do you realize in the past 2000 years alone in the church age, how many nations have been able to get along with each other? It's just constantly wars and rumors of wars, one fighting with the other. Here this guy turns around, he goes in and gets the Nobel Peace Prize. How do you get the Peace Prize for doing nothing? That's because the mentality of the other nations are toward this guy. Their attitude is toward him. I mean, they can't even justify it. All they can say is, you know, well, it's kind of based on what he's trying to do. He hadn't done anything. That shows you the attitude. Now, if he's not the Antichrist... Don't you think when the real Antichrist shows up, how much easier it's going to be for them all to go after him? He's also anti-Israel, which is absolutely the way it's going to be. You know how many presidents we've had in America that were anti-Israel? I can't even think of any. I'm sure there might have been some, but I can't think of any. This thing was built on this book, and the people that fear God realize what part Israel plays in God's plan. The ones that don't worry about that stuff are the ones that don't think there's anything to do with God. And there's a bunch more references I could get into, but I won't get all into all of that. But anyway, then there's another thing that showed up two or three weeks back. Revelation 13, 4 says, and they worship the beast. This character shows up. He's going to be an object of worship. Here they are teaching kids in elementary school songs of worship. Like what? You got a songbook there, a blue one. Hymns of praise and worship. Well, number 530, they've applied to Barack Hussein Obama. And that song starts out, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And they're teaching the children, Mine eyes have seen the glory of Barack Hussein Obama. Now you tell me what's going on in the hearts of people. When you start to see that stuff, pretty soon you got to just say, We must be closer to the end time than I thought. I believe it more and more all the time now. I mean, I'm starting to see things now that just constant steady flow of this stuff. Also over in Daniel 11:37, it says, neither shall he regard the desire of women. You say, what's that got to do with Obama? He's married. This last week, I hear a commentator talking about how clean Barack Obama is and that he is above reproach to the point that his eyes don't even glance at a good-looking woman walking by. Why would he say that? Why would you try to make this guy so pure and clean he won't even glance at a woman? Well, Clinton didn't have that problem. Kennedy didn't have that problem. What about this guy shows up like that? I mean, if his eyes don't even glance over at another woman, it's either that the guy is trying to be somebody he's not, and he's got a lot more self-control than I got, and a lot more self-control than some of you got. If you're sure enough a man, there's some things that are attractive to you. You say, well, just because you glance at a woman, is that looking on a woman to lust after? No, I don't think so. 
Why would they bother to say that this guy is so clean and pure that his eyes don't even glance at another woman? What if that guy really doesn't have any real regard for women? The guy that shows up won't. And then yesterday on the news, I hear him talking about this one world government. You say one world government? Yeah, they're establishing a one world government. What for? To enforce environmental laws on a global scale. And they want to build a one world government. And the excuse is going to be that they need to solve these problems with global warming and stuff to be able to protect the world. And that's the one thing that's going to be essential. You say, what's so interesting about that? Well, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Now, we're living in some strange days. We are. And the point behind this whole thing is, what if we only had one more year? What if we had only one more month? Would you change anything you're doing? I think it was Martin Luther that asked him, if the Lord was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd go work in my garden. He said, I don't need to make any preparation. I'm doing everything I know how to do. Probably the guy's a whole lot better off than I am. I mean, if the Lord was coming back tomorrow and he let me in on it, I'd probably do something today different. And what would you do? Well, first of all, I'd probably try to get as right as I could get with him, you know. I'd be checking up on my salvation and everybody else that I know, you know, drive everybody nuts for about 24 hours. I guarantee you I wouldn't be sleeping. <laughs> I mean, I'd be outside and look it up. I want to get by the graveyard, you know, just to see if they open up first. <laughs> the tomb opened up, right? Lazarus, he called him forth. He had to take him out of the grave. You say, well, you really think those guys are going to come back together and they're going to come out body and all? I don't know, but it'd be an interesting study, wouldn't it? Of course, it wouldn't be a long study. It'd be pretty brief. Anyway, I think the Lord's coming back, and I think he's coming back real soon. And if nothing else, you're seeing changes that line up with prophecies that are at least a couple thousand years old, if not older. And these things are lining up in the last days and in the last moments. I'm just as confident as I can be of it. You say, what about the kids? What about this? What about that? Well, that's where faith comes in. Be not faithless, but believing. The Lord's going to take care of everything. All right. Well, let's get back into our regular Bible study then and get off this crazy stuff. We've been looking at the acceptable will of God, and we're going to move on into the perfect will of God. Now, I don't know much about God's perfect will. I wish I did. I'd like to understand some of that. But the simple fact is, I feel so backslidden most of the time. Every time I bow my head and start praying, I got to repent for who I am. And not as much what I do. It's not like God says, oh, you better get that thing right with me because you remember what you did over there. God doesn't do that. He doesn't shove my sins up in front of me and say, you said this. Now you get this right with me and get that right with them. Then come back and see me. It's not like that. But anytime you get in the presence of real holiness, you feel dirty. And if you don't feel dirty when you bow your head, it's because God isn't anywhere near your prayer life. And that's the truth. 
And the closer he is to you, the dirtier you're going to feel. And if there's anything that indicates that he is near and listening, it's that sensation of, God, you are somebody and I am nothing. And when you feel that, you know, you're on some good ground. And God says, now that's why I came, because your heart's in the right place. I knew what it was before you bowed your head. (laughs) Anyway, now we got some examples. Think about this. It pleased God to bruise Jesus Christ. Was that God's perfect will? And if it pleased, it must have been. No, it wasn't. It wasn't his perfect will. It was his acceptable will. His perfect will was Adam and Eve just obey what he said. That's what his perfect will was. Unless you begin to think beyond yourself, you're not going to get any of this perfect will stuff. You're going to take one look at it and say, well, it must be this or it must be that. Remember, he says, your ways are not his ways, which means that when we come to a conclusion, we're more than likely wrong. We're so messed up that we couldn't understand the perfect will if he actually started explaining it to us. Perfect will. Is God long-suffering? Is that part of his perfect will? Not after he tells you that he created all things for his pleasure. You think he enjoys being long-suffering? You think he likes suffering? Not if he made everything for his pleasure. His perfect will is all of his creation does what he desires for them to do. Now, eventually, he's going to fix this, right? And after he does, in his presence, fullness of joy to right-hand pleasures forevermore, no more long-suffering. He doesn't have to be. Why? Because by then, everything will be fixed. He won't have to worry about that. So we're living in a lot of the good will and the acceptable will of God. So when you move out of that realm into the perfect will, there's some things that change. Once again, over there in the will of God, he says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. So he gives us an opportunity to prove it. And over in Ephesians 5, 8, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto God. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to assume that if you're in the perfect will of God, that you're in goodness, righteousness, and truth. So I think it extends beyond just the acceptable will and moves clear into the perfect will also. So let's go back over to the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 28, 9, and 10. Get some of the groundwork that God lays back in here. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9 and 10. He's talking to Solomon here. Now this is a paragraph that's two verses long. So it's kind of a separate thought in this whole chapter. He says, And thou, Solomon... My son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. You don't have to worry about that being cast off forever. The reason they had to worry about it back in the Old Testament was their salvation depended upon 
partial works, partial faith. You say, what are you talking about? They had to come and offer the sacrifices. They had to keep the law. You say, did any of them keep the law? No, they really didn't keep the law. They generally kept the law. They put forth an effort to keep the law. You say, well, what saved them? Same thing that saves anybody these days. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. That's why he says, serve God with a perfect heart. So you get down to the heart motive and God says, okay, well, you were trying the best you could and you feared me and you were trying to act by faith. And so I'm going to put that over there under my will and it's going to be put on account when Jesus Christ dies. It's going to cover your sin. You get to go to Abraham's bosom. You just got to wait for the atonement. But you notice he's referencing some things here about the sanctuary and so forth. He says, serve God with a perfect heart and a willing mind. I don't have a perfect heart. I got a deceitful heart. I see that more and more every day I live now. The more I understand and know God a little bit better and understand and appreciate who he really is and see myself in direct connection with him, the more I understand how wicked my heart is. I'll have an opinion about something and I'll feel feelings of wanting to defend myself. What for? Why do I need to defend anything? To my own master I stand or fall. I don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks about me. All I got to worry about is what God thinks about me. Why can't I get a hold of that? Why can't I hang on to that? Because of my pride. And then I find myself arguing with somebody and proving my point. Now I really feel good about myself. Oh, that's just great. (laughs) Now I've totally been led astray by my deceitful heart to the point where I reinforce my beliefs instead of questioning them, instead of looking for God's leadership. I mean, when was the last time you got in an argument with anybody, especially family members, and you were actually looking for God's will in that argument instead of yours? Isn't that amazing how easily we're distracted? And you realize almost every one of those situations come down to where it's something about you And the easiest thing that Satan uses to distract you is something that deals with your emotions of anger and pride. And if he can put you in a position where you're challenged, you immediately forget God. In fact, you lose just about all rational thought. Guy cuts you off and I just happen to have a baseball bat in the back. (laughs) I'll go work this guy over. I'll teach him some new lessons. (laughs) risk the whole rest of your life over something that flimsy. Anyway, he wants you to serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. Also, he says, if thou seek him, he will be found of thee. If he seek him, he'll be found of thee. And this is Old Testament. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is telling us this stuff over and over and over and over. And our problem is we're not doers of the word. I mean, what did you do this last week with the intent to accomplish something God asked of thee? Anything at all? I mean, really anything? Well, I prayed for my meal. I came to church. I haven't found those things on God's list. What are we doing about it? It's like we're just stuck in the hearer's mode. Well, 
If you're going to start doing something about the word of God, you're going to have to be different than you are, right? How are you going to be different? In order for you to be different, something has to change, right? He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He also talks about serving him with a perfect heart right here and a willing mind. Another place, he says, you're changed from glory to glory. So if you're going to get changed, you're going to have to start seeking God. And you're going to have to start seeking to understand his glory. And if you decide that's not that big a deal and just leave it alone, you're not going to change. You just stay on the same way you are. Really, look back in your Christian life, five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30, some of you have 50, 60 years. How much different is your Christian life now than it was? Mine was like a stagnant pond from the mid-80s, and it just kind of sat there for a while, and then through the 90s, and it was just working, serving God, doing what I was supposed to do. Once in a while, the Lord would show up. That's not what he intended. He intended some fellowship with you on a daily basis. He intended interaction with you. He intended you to grow in grace. So where's the growth? Where's the change? And in the last few years, he's made it clear to me how that can happen. And it's not coming to church and it's not giving money and it's not being good to the homeless. It's seeking your creator, seeking what he desires, what's in his best interest. What's important to you, God? My glory. You want to start there? Well, I'd rather start with putting some money in the offering plate. Won't that do it? Well, let me watch and see. Huh. Another offering. No cheerful giving. Just duty. I give you chance after chance. and You just keep messing it up. Why? No perfect heart. No willing mind. It's just I'm under duress or I've just been conditioned. I think a lot of us serve God just like the guy wakes up in jail and has to go do what they tell him to do. Just go do that, which is our duty to do. There's no passion. There's no real desire. It's just like buying Christmas presents and birthday presents. We do it just because we're supposed to do it. God loveth a cheerful giver. What's that? I want you to do it because you want to. When is the last time you put money in the offering plate because you wanted to? Well, you can just sit where you're at or you can try to find out what God wants and become a doer of the word. Or you can just stay where you're at. But at least now we got some direction. At least now we know there's a different way and we know there's a better way and God's doing something to make it a little clearer. When did that happen? In my life, it's when I began to seek how to glorify him. That's when he began to change everything. He didn't change stuff when my wife came home. He didn't change anything other than just the fact that I was terribly grateful. And I enjoyed every morning waking up. I enjoyed waking up in the middle of the night and looking over. I still do. I wake up and look over there, just happy she's still here. But that's not what really started changing things. Things started to change when I began to seek how to glorify him. That was my desire. Anyway, he said, if thou seek him, he'll be found of thee. What else? Matthew 7, 24. He talks about building a house upon a rock. We just covered that parable recently, right? What else? He also gets over to 1 Peter 2, 5. And that's very similar to it. 
Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What's this got to do with Solomon? Don't you realize that back there he's talking to Solomon about building a house for him. What was the house? It was the temple. Temple of what? Temple of God. God moved in when he got it done. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God and you're not your own? All of a sudden, this stuff starts to tie together. What he's telling Solomon back there about building this house and what he's talking about to us. Because the two are very, very similar. One's just Old Testament before the atonement. The other one is New Testament after the atonement. And God is living in there. So what's this got to do with anything? Well, we'll probably get into it next week some, but I'll give you a little idea. 1979, I built a house. You say, what's building your house have to do with this? They're really similar. Things happened when I built that house that happened the same exact way God illustrates in his book when you're building the house that he desires. Primarily, if you're going to build a house that's going to be built right and going to last, it has to be inspected. And you can build it without a building permit. All the Jehovah's Witnesses are doing that. The Mormons are doing that. The Seventh-day Adventists are doing that. The Church of Christ are doing that. You say, you think they're all lost? No, but I think that if they do what their system teaches, they're lost. And if they are saved, they have no spiritual leadership whatsoever. Because that system, every one of those things that I just named are cults, every one of them. You say, what about the Catholics? What about Presbyterians? What about Episcopalians? You stop and think about it. Why are we Baptists? Because of our doctrinal beliefs. That's true. But that's not the reason you ought to be Baptist. You ought to be Baptist because the Holy Spirit led you into the truth. Well, I believe this, so therefore I'm that. Wrong reason. They believe exactly the same way. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe this. Wrong. And if you're believing this stuff because that's what you've been taught and you can prove it by the doctrine, then you haven't proved it by the building inspector who is the Holy Spirit. You're just going along accepting what you believe based on what it says instead of somebody actually inspected it and says, here's what you need to do. We'll get into that more next time. Let's close in prayer.